0: Today, in the course of the sermon, we'll be looking at three different passages, and so if you want to write them down or open your Bibles to them, um, in Psalm, or Psalm 121, and then 2 Corinthians 12, and then finally Matthew chapter 6. Believing that fearlessness is not the answer, that it is a vice and not a virtue. Believing that fear has a place and is tied to love and the possibility of loss. How are we to be followers of Jesus in a culture of fear? This is something we've been considering the past five Sundays. Last Sunday, which was Easter Sunday, we considered the fear of the disciples that first Easter. And we looked at two important aspects in dealing with fear. And particularly courage in response to fear, that is community and providence. In the matter of community, we saw that for all our talking and longing, yearning for community, our culture is one of disconnection. We tend to prize individualism or individual achievement over all else. How could we not be anxious and fearful when we lack connection both to our past as well as our present? to those around us as well as those who have gone before. Put another way, the absence of community, both the community of the dead, that we see in tradition, those who have gone before, and the community of the living adds to our fear. We feel alone and therefore we are fearful. If we are to recover courageous living, as we saw last week, we need to recover the kind of community that is capable of supporting it. We are to be such a community, a church, a congregation. And as a congregation, we can often bear risks together that we might be reluctant or fearful to bear alone or to face alone. Courage, as we saw, is the capacity to do what is right and good in the face of fear. We become courageous when we learn to live for something that is more important than ourselves. But we might ask wisely, How do we know if our actions are courageous or in fact just simply reckless? Here is where the community comes in, the congregation. One of the things a Christian community can do for us is to provide a place where we can weigh judgment together about what is courageous action and what is reckless action. The community needs to be a place of discernment. So we don't rely on our our judgments alone, but we can speak to one another, to our brothers and sisters, and talk about these things. Beyond embodying and encouraging uh, courage, the church is also to be a community in which our fears can be spoken out loud. Too often, sadly, the church is a place where we feel like we need to put on a happy face no matter how we're feeling. We have to dress ourselves up to make ourselves presentable to others and perhaps even to God. In a church that really frowns on vulnerability, the church, if we're not careful, can be a place where vulnerability is not expected or, in fact, is simply met with judgment or simple platitudes. We must be able to give words to our fears and to say, this is a fear that I am facing. We ought to exist as a people of God in which fears can be expressed honestly since we believe that in expressing them they no longer control us. We saw last week that the church is to be a place of shared risks but is also to be a place of shared resources. Um, you know, we pray the prayer give us this day our daily bread but do we recognize that oftentimes? I may be the source of somebody else's daily bread. That when I ask God to give someone their daily bread or to give me my daily bread, he may in fact be using a member of the congregation to do precisely that. If we are to be courageous as individuals and as a congregation, our fears need to be rightly formed. That is to say, we need to have the right amount of fear. Not so little that we become reckless about our lives, but not too much fear lest we become paralyzed and end up doing nothing. We need each other. We need the congregation, the church, the community, both to learn of courage and to live out courage. And yet, when we look at that first Easter, and we did last week, you have a congregation, you have a community, you have a group of disciples, followers of Jesus, and yet they are not marked by courage. In fact, they are marked by fear. And why was that? I mean, they seem to have what I've been saying we need to face our fears, that is community. Well, the second part that we need to look at is the matter of providence. We saw how that Our view of providence today, in the past 300 years, is radically different than what we see prior to that. We need to think of providence in terms of story or narrative, that we are part of an ongoing story or an ongoing narrative. And rather than trying to explain every single incident in someone's life to say, oh, there's the providence of God there, we need rather to think in terms of the sweeping arc of God's story in human history. We are not to see history as simply a series of disconnected or unconnected moments and events. Something as a history professor, I try to instill in my students who simply think that history is a matter of dates and places and names and don't see the ongoing picture of human history. We need to see and affirm that our lives are part of God's story so that our place in the story becomes clearer as time goes on. Perhaps not in a given moment when we are in the midst of some crisis, but as time moves on, we begin to see more clearly. And perhaps others in the congregation who are outside of us can look at us and say, it seems that this may be what is happening in your life. In time, we may see what God is seeking to make of us. Scott Bader Say, in his book, says, To affirm God's providence in the face of fear is to believe that our stories, as they participate in God's story, cannot ultimately be derailed by illness or accident, evil or suffering. And yet, we looked last Sunday at the first Easter, and we saw that, in fact, that's how they thought of providence. They thought in terms of story. We looked in and Luke 24, as Cleopas and Mary are walking on the road to Emmaus outside of Jerusalem. And they are having this deep theological discussion about the events of the previous days. Jesus joins them. They don't know it's him. And they're like, what's going on? And they're like, are you the only person who doesn't know what's going on? What's happened these past few days? And to them, something went tragically wrong with the story. They had the story, but they got the story wrong. They said to Jesus, We had hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And Jesus then corrects their version of the story. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, because they got the story wrong... They were afraid. They were fearful. They had a group, a community, followers of Jesus. But that didn't help. They had the story. But that didn't help because they had the story wrong. And getting it wrong is what led to their fear. That's why the disciples were behind locked doors. I think in part that's why Cleopas and Mary are leaving Jerusalem and walking to Emmaus. They were a believing community, but they were still afraid. They thought in terms of story... They were still afraid. You see, it is not enough to have a believing community. It is not enough to think in terms of story or narrative. We must, by God's grace, understand what God's providence entails. As we go through life, we need to remember that God's promises are there to provide and to redeem. That is to give us what we need to go on and to reclaim all that was lost along the way. This is what we, what we mean when we speak of God's providence. But does this mean that God will protect us from pain or from harm or from danger? If we think that this means we will suffer no difficulties in our lives, we may find ourselves devastated when we are experiencing these things. If we think that God's providence is a guaranteed protection plan, we will mistake what is going on in life and the kind of power God is choosing to use in our lives in guiding the creation and us to our ultimate goal. So what is the place of faith when we talk about fear? And what are we to make of the passages in Scripture that seem to promise that God will protect us for the good and the faithful? Those who are good, those who are faithful, God will protect us. Well, Psalm 20, twenty-one, twenty-one is one of those psalms that seems to point in that direction. It's a favorite psalm of many. It's a psalm of ascent. It's one that the pilgrims used to sing as they were going to Jerusalem for the various religious festivals. Follow along, if you would, as I read. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. What we hear in this psalm is a certain viewpoint found in Scripture that emphasizes God's protection for His people. We hear it throughout the psalms and even in the book of Proverbs. In Psalm 37, in one translation, Trust in the Lord and do good so you will live in the land and enjoy security. So there seems to be a simple trait that if, in fact, we trust in the Lord, God will protect us from all harm. If we have faith, then nothing can go wrong in our lives. And one could argue that such a view of trust or faith is found also in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. In the story of the woman who had suffered an issue of bleeding for 12 years and thought if she could just touch Jesus' rope, that she would be healed. Um, Jesus will not allow for an anonymous healing. In the midst of the crowd, he asked what seems to be a perplexing question, who touched me? And the disciples are like, are you kidding? You're, you're surrounded by all these people but the woman comes forward, and Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, if we take this story and the passage from Psalm 121 and others, if we take them by themselves, we might come to believe, almost as a guarantee, that if we trust God, God will protect us and, or heal us or deliver us from all harm. I would say that this is a strand of thought found in scripture. But it is not the dominant strand. It doesn't give us the whole picture. Instead, on its own, as Bader Say puts it, on its own, it can have terrible theological consequences. Think of the story of Job. Job loses everything. All his possessions and his ten children. And he responds wonderfully Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Then Job's health is taken from him. And he responds to his wife, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And then rather than being comforted by his believing community, Job is given bad theological advice. First from his wife, who I believe could not stand to see her husband, In such torment, and told him, Why don't you curse God and get it over with? If you curse God, then God will kill you, and then your suffering will be over. And then we have his famous friends, his comforters. Like Job, they are not Israelites, they're not Hebrews. They do not belong to the covenant people of God, but they do worship God. They believe that He is the Creator, that He is the Judge. And he is righteous in all that he does. We hear this time and again in their speeches. They agreed to meet together. And then they go to see Job to comfort him. But when they see him from a distance, they can hardly recognize him. They begin to weep aloud. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And we see in them the presence and silence of comforting friends. What one writer calls the sacrament of silence. But after seven days and seven nights, the silence is broken. Not by the friends, but by Job. And nothing in what we read in chapter one and two, in which he says, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, or Should we expect only good from God's hands and not bad? None of that prepares us for what we hear in chapter three. He cries out out of the depths of his suffering. He cries out in anguish, and with words that border on blasphemy, Job spits out his bitterness. He shouts his doubts. He sobs his wish for death. Who knows what had been going through his mind the previous days? And then his friends come and they see him, and after seven days of silence, he can't hold it in. When he is finished, his friends decide that they are going to correct his theology. They speak from the strand that we have been looking at in Scripture, that the good will flourish and the evil will suffer. But in fact, Job is innocent, and yet he is suffering. His friends have no theological categories for this. They, they believe if you are good, God will bless you, and if you are evil, God will punish you. They don't have a third category where you can be good and you are still suffering. They are convinced and they try to convince Job that he is, in fact, a wicked man. He's put on a good face, but deep down he's a wicked man and that's why he has suffered these things. The consequences of his wickedness have come home to roost. They are wrong. And at the end of the story, God said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has the book of Job in some ways complicates the issues of suffering and divine protection clearly God does not always deliver the righteous from suffering indeed sometimes the righteous are made to suffer and in the case of Job we are not even told why But there are many, even today, who, like Job's comforters, insist on the simple trade. If we trust God, if we have enough faith, then God will protect us. And they can think of divine providence only in terms of control and protection. Bader St. tells the story of a friend of his, a young man who was dying of cancer. And he received a letter from a Christian woman who told him that she knew it was God's will for him to be healed miraculously. If he would simply believe and have enough faith, he would be healed. And while she may have intended it as comfort, instead the recipient heard it as judgment. I'm not healed because apparently I don't have enough faith. And if I just had enough faith or good enough faith, then bad things wouldn't happen to me. This man, in his cancer, in fact, he had to dictate the letter because his strength was failing so quickly. He answered her in part by pointing to passages of Scripture that speak of a different strand that we find throughout Scripture. One such passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is the second text that I mentioned at the beginning. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse number 2. Paul writes to the Corinthians, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What we hear in Paul's writing to the Corinthians is that providence does not guarantee protection certainly with his list of insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. But rather, God's providence assures us of his provision, that he will make a way for us to go on, and for his redemption to restore what was lost along the way. In the Gospels, Jesus speaks of this as well. In Luke chapter 13, we have a conversation between Jesus and his disciples Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus asked his disciples, how would they interpret it? Here you have religious Jews who are sacrificing to God, and the Roman leader decides to kill them along with their sacrifices. Do you think, Jesus asked, that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then there's this story in John chapter 9 of the blind man. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, for them, they were thinking like Job's comforters. Something bad had happened to him, therefore he must have done something bad. And who sinned, this man or his parents? Well, it's an interesting question, because if he was born blind, well, they believed in before he was incarnated in his pre-existence, he must have done some kind of sin so that when he was finally born in the flesh, He was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus seeks to make clear that these sufferings and these tragedies did not result from sin or lack of faith. These victims did not deserve what they got more than anyone else. Divine providence does not provide, or does not promise security in any conventional sense. Though in a culture of fear, that is what many of us long for. You may remember that earlier in the series we said that security and safety can be and have in fact become idols in a culture of fear. We want promises that we will be kept safe. And if God can't give them to us, then our politicians will. Guy and I, it seems, happens almost every week as we're watching some TV show, some cop show, police show, in which they ask a witness to come forward and they say to the witness, we will protect you. And Guy and I both sort of shake our heads or laugh out loud. But that's what we want to hear. We want to hear the words that we can be protected. And if God cannot protect us, if he will not protect us, then we want someone who will. Well, those in our society who promise to protect us do so based on conventional power. It comes from strength and wealth. But if we go back to Second Corinthians 12, what Paul spoke about was not strength, but weakness. In fact, in the first chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul told them that God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And then at the end of what we read today, For when I am weak, then I am strong. What we find in scripture is a paradoxical paradoxical reversal of strength and weakness. And in doing so, it reveals something I think we need to really get a hold of. God desires to work through our vulnerability rather than to simply overcome it. What we find in scripture is that precisely when we need to be strong, or when we seek to be strong, we in fact are weak. That only when we rely on God's strength in our weakness do we find real strength. The gospel displays this truth in the passion of Jesus. The cross reveals his power, which is the power of vulnerable love. If this is the case, then one might argue, then what kind of security can God give us? What kind of providence can he provide, if you wish? What kind of power is there in vulnerability? What we find is the security of God's providence, which brings us the assurance of provision and the promise of redemption. See, God is guiding history toward its proper end, not by conventional power, control, or domination, but by entering into human history as he did through Jesus and transforming it from within. In Jesus, we see someone, well, he tells us who God is, who refuses to make the world right by violently enforcing the good. But this is what we want, isn't it? Isn't this oftentimes what we pray for? That God would make things right, even if it is through violence. With this view of providence, what does it say of God's providence? What does it say about God, about what he does or doesn't do in the world? Consider the story of Joseph. When Joseph's brothers, because of their hatred and jealousy, sold him into slavery, God did not block their actions. When Joseph was sold to Potiphar, God did not block that action. When Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of wrongdoing, for which Joseph was in prison, God did not block her actions or those of her husband. When the butler forgot about Joseph, who had correctly interpreted his dream, God did not remind him. Until the time came, when Pharaoh had a dream that needed to be interpreted. But God is not merely passive. It isn't simply that God did not simply block these actions. So, for example, Joseph was sold into slavery, but he did not die a slave. Rather, he ended up in the household of Potiphar, where God prospered him and he was put in charge of the household. Joseph was imprisoned, But the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of those held in prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Yes, Joseph was in prison. God did not block those actions, but Joseph did not die in prison. Joseph was made second to Pharaoh in Egypt. Joseph enacted plans to help help Egypt survive the coming famine, and this enabled him to help save his father and brothers. Joseph saw it this way. He explained it to his brothers after their father died, because they were afraid once that Jacob was dead that Joseph would then get his revenge. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God acted in and through the actions of Joseph's brothers, neither blocking their evil schemes, nor simply accepting them either. So Joseph does not die a slave. We see God not acting, but acting as well. Consider what we see in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus was betrayed by one of the twelve. God did not block the actions of Judas. Jesus was arrested by the temple guard. God did not block their actions, though Peter tried to do so with the sword. And you will remember that Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But God did not. Jesus was put on trial a number of times in front of various powers. God did not block their actions. Jesus was scourged. God did not stop that from happening. Jesus was crucified. God did not block that action. Jesus was mocked. God allowed that to happen. Jesus died. God did not block that action. But neither did God let death win. The resurrection displays how God does act in human history. Think for a moment. If any of the things that I've said that God did not block in the suffering of Jesus, if any of those, if God had blocked them, then we might not have a crucified Jesus. And without a crucified Jesus, we cannot have a dead Jesus. And without a dead Jesus, we cannot have a resurrected Jesus. So we see that God does not act, or at least it seems to us that he is not acting, he is not blocking certain things, but we should not imagine he's not doing anything, that God, in fact, has a purpose that he is working out. If and when God does not use his power to block evil and suffering, we should understand that God does not necessarily protect us from all harm or every evil. Rather, we should come to understand, as I've said several times, that God will provide what we need to go on, and that God will redeem what was lost along the way. Could this, in fact, be what Jesus was referring to in the Sermon on the Mount? This is our third text in Matthew chapter 6. And as I read these familiar words to you, think in terms of fear and worry and security But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In this amazing passage, Jesus addresses our fears and our insecurities. To the extent that we seek to secure our own goods apart from participating in the kingdom of God, we mistake secondary things for ultimate things. Security becomes more important to us than the things of God, the kingdom of God. Living in a culture of fear, I think this can happen more easily to us than perhaps any generation before us. But being safe cannot be more important to us than being faithful. One might ask, well, if I'm being faithful, what if that makes me unsafe? What if being faithful results in suffering? Then we are to trust that God will provide and that God will redeem our losses. Perhaps not in our lifetime, but certainly at the end of history, God will make all things right. In the congregation, as a people of God, as we speak to one another, as we share risks, as we share our resources, We need to remind each other that if things haven't ended well, well, they haven't ended. It's not over. The story is not over yet. There is more to come. As Christians, we are to affirm God's providence. And it should, in fact, encourage us. It should shore up our resolve To, in fact, live lives of Christian discipleship. To follow Jesus, even in a culture of fear. And to know that at the end of time, God will make all things right. Toward the end of Revelation, we hear these amazing words. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, One thing we should, we may have missed is if, in fact, he is going to wipe away our tears, then we must, in fact, have been crying. And if, in fact, there will be no more death or mourning or pain, there must be, right now, pain and death and mourning. As I said a few moments ago, we need, we need to remind ourselves that if something hasn't ended well, Well, it hasn't ended, and we need to trust that God will make all things right. Perhaps, again, not in our lifetime. The martyrs certainly didn't see it in their lifetime, but we are part of God's story, and in that story, God will take care of us. Let's pray together. Father, so often we see you as a giant resource. The words of Bob Dylan, we think you're just an errand boy to satisfy our wandering desires. And when things don't go well, we wonder where you are and, and why, why you haven't taken care of us and, and why we have suffered certain things, why we have suffered loss. Why we may be out of work. So many things. Where is God that these things have happened? And then we begin to worry. Or perhaps even not having lost these things, we worry about losing them. The potential of these things being taken from us. Help us understand your providence. That you do act but not always in the way that we want you to. And that in the cross, we see a God of vulnerability, who through vulnerability, through weakness, is bringing redemption to his creation. I ask that in the days to come, we would think and meditate on these things. And by your grace, be followers of Jesus in a culture of fear. I thank you that we could gather this day to worship you in spirit and in truth. May we be lights in a world of darkness. May your spirit go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.